Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. My co-host, April Dawson, is not with us tonight, but we're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law, and we thank you for joining us uh, this evening. Since the end of Reconstruction, African-Americans have been engaged in a continuing struggle to gain, maintain, and utilize the right to vote. The right to vote without discrimination is mandated in the North Carolina Constitution and in the 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which prohibits discrimination in voting based upon a person's race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Despite these constitutional declarations, there has been a history of opposition to the exercise of this right by governmental and private sources within this country. This opposition led to the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which after a long, violent civil rights struggle was supposed to provide additional protections for this right. After significant victories in this fight, which have resulted in significant increases in political participation and the presence of African-Americans and people of color in elected and appointed positions, efforts to roll back those gains have intensified in, in North Carolina and around the country. This opposition resulted in the gutting of the pre-clearance provision of the Voting Rights Act by a more conservative U.S. Supreme Court, which is in place today. At the state level, the General Assembly is engaged in legislative efforts right now to roll back many of the hard-won voting rights gains, and the North Carolina Supreme Court has endorsed that effort in recent decisions. Thus, it came as a pleasant surprise when on June 8th, the U.S. Supreme Court seemingly upheld Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in a decision in the Allen versus Milligan case. In recent months, we have discussed the many governmental efforts presently underway that are designed to deter African-Americans and people of color from exercising their right to vote. Tonight, we will return to that issue and discuss it again by dissecting the Miller, the Allen versus Milligan decision and its expected impacts and implications. Our guests for this discussion are Marcus Bass, who has been with us uh, previously, the executive director of the North Carolina Black Alliance, and Kathleen Robles, the Senior Voting Rights Counsel and Litigation Manager at uh, Forward Justice. So uh, Marcus and Kat, uh, thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Well, just to start us off uh, for our audience, because some may have forgotten and some may not know, uh, starting with Kat, can you kind of talk about uh, Forward Justice, uh, what it is, and uh, what are the uh, type efforts that uh, you are engaged in uh, that uh, will uh, uh, promote 
uh, the uh, interests of uh, minorities and racial uh, racial minorities and people of color in this country. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a movement lawyer at Forward Justice. Um, we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, law policy and strategy center uh, located in North Carolina. Um, we advocate for racial justice, social justice, and economic justice. Um, in the voting rights context, that means fighting for equal access to the ballot through challenges to things like voter ID and felony disenfranchisement laws that we argue are both racially discriminatory in their intent and in the way that they impact black and brown voters in North Carolina. Okay. And Marcus, for those who have uh, forgotten from your last appearance on this, uh, on this uh, program, will you talk about uh, the work uh, that uh, you're doing with uh, uh, the uh, North Carolina Black Alliance? Absolutely. Uh, the North Carolina Black Alliance is a committed group of elected officials, community leaders, and grassroots leaders from every level of government coming together to form solutions around several different issue areas, environmental justice, access to healthcare, criminal justice reform, and of course, in this case, voting rights. Uh, we believe that our democracy is based on a system of laws that in some cases have elicited negative effects in the black community and the harming of our ability to vote and the marginalizing of our power is something that we're very concerned about and it's connected to all of the issues in our communities. And so we work with organizations like Forward Justice and other groups that are committed to uh, ensuring access to the vote is a top priority, especially in a democracy where um, so many different areas of misinformation and disinformation can uh, suppress the vote. We wanna make sure that laws are created to affirm the ability for every American, regardless of their color, uh, to vote and participate in this election and every election. And uh, we believe firmly in that right. And this decision uh, that Alabama, in Alabama uh, by the Supreme Court is something that we're very interested in and has implications in North Carolina. So excited to be a part of the conversation this evening. Okay, it's good to have both of, of you here to help to uh, educate uh, our audience and to motivate them to uh, go out and uh, fight back against some of the uh, issues and problems and concerns that uh, we will address uh, during our discussion. As a kind of, I guess, preliminary uh, matter, Cat, uh, I wanna start with you. Can, can you kind of talk about the importance of the Voting Rights Act and the kind of uh, uh, impact that it has had on uh, being able to maximize uh, the uh, political participation of uh, racial minorities and disenfranchised uh, communities uh, in this uh, in this state. Yeah, absolutely. You know, <clears throat> one thing they talk a lot a lot about in the Allen v. Milligan case is just that the Fifteenth Amendment was passed shortly after the Civil War, but that it effectively didn't do anything until we saw the Voting Rights Act of 1965 come along, um, and really make a difference to have actual remedies for voting discrimination. Um, that involved a lot of different things. Um, as you referenced in the beginning, we had Section 5 preclearance, um, which unfortunately was gutted in 2013 and Shelby v. Holder. Um, but this case um, that we're talking about today comes from Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 which essentially prohibits any voting practice or procedure that discriminates on the basis of race, color, 
or membership in a language minority group. And importantly, that's been applied to redistricting as well. Um, so there are just so many ways in which the Voting Rights Act was the vehicle to really bring the spirit of the 15th Amendment to life because we saw so many years where it just really wasn't doing anything to protect Black and Brown voters. We saw a whole era of Jim Crow laws after the 15th Amendment. So I think that's the best way to really describe what the Voting Rights Act did in this country. You know, the amazing thing about uh, this history is that when the Voting Rights Act was passed, there were no African-Americans in the North Carolina General Assembly. And it would be another uh, four years before the first one would be uh, elected. And uh, around the state, there were some school board members here and there or uh, town council members uh, here and there. So it had a uh, tremendous impact. Uh, and, uh, you know, just going to, to Marcus, who, you know, works with this coalition of Black elected and appointed officials, uh, and, which is a kind of a new thing, uh, because before 1965, you couldn't even have an organization uh, because there weren't enough people to uh, to be a part of that. So kind of talk about uh, the uh, importance of the Voting Rights Act as you represent and work with uh, those people who have directly benefited by being elected and appointed uh, to uh, political positions in the state. That's a very good question, Attorney Joyner. Uh, historically, I think you have to go back not just to uh, 1965, to the Voting Rights Act, but actually to 1868, when at the time, in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, there was a number of Black lawmakers in levels of government, particularly in legislative uh, bodies across the South and in our congressional um, bodies. Those individuals in those offices help create some of the foundations of the laws that we are still fighting today. Uh, this is right uh, in the midst of the period of Reconstruction, where individuals were trying to deal with how to enfranchise individuals that were once considered slaves, that were considered uh, a, a portion of a citizen, three-fifths of a citizen. And in this case, I think we're looking at uh, what it still means for those same descendants of those individuals to have to um, beg of a body, a democratic body, to accept them as a full vote. When we're looking at the packing of a district in Alabama on the basis of race, that goes well beyond the basis of partisanship and politics. And it looks at the marginalization of a Black vote. Well, I think in 1868, they understood this notion of uh, equal representation. They understood the formation of laws and policies that help uh, create some of the movements that started 100 years uh, later, and what we saw in the Civil Rights Movement and in the passage of the Voting Rights Act, thanks to the Civil Rights Movement and the uh, forerunners like Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, individuals that um, participated in Freedom Rides in the South. And so I think there is a long history of not just elected um, uh, participation from a governmental standpoint, but from a community standpoint, young people, uh, individuals that decided to enter law uh, because of the injustice that they saw and the disenfranchisement of uh, their former family members. These are the individuals that created the nucleus for what we see in a Voting Rights Act that's still being determined today in 2023. Uh, I think the implications of Alabama's decision uh, really land on the context of what folks thought was a weakened Voting Rights Act. Uh, in some cases, because of uh, the preclearance being gutted from the Voting Rights Act, 
there was a strong belief that this Supreme Court was looking at creating a Voting Rights Act that was just uh, in name only with no teeth. But in some cases, I think the passage or the decision of the Supreme Court to affirm a lower court ruling that these maps were um, racist in regards to misrepresentation or the dilution of the black vote, I think that has the same kind of uh, tenets to this 100 year, this 100 plus year battle of inequality and the use of litigation, the use of the courts and the use of movement spaces to make sure that we are holding a, a, a argument in democracy that enfranchises and empowers black voters. And so from our standpoint, uh, there have been different movements at a local level around school boards, around local elected officials. Harvey Gantt is a name that we all remember as one of, as the first black mayor in the city of Charlotte, also went in to run for Senate, uh, lost to Jesse Helms on the basis of some racial context there. And so race has always been uh, a third arm in this two-party system. And in this case, the Supreme Court ruled that the gerrymandering uh, was a step beyond partisanship and really disenfranchised voters on the basis of race, which is the starting point for this conversation from emancipation. All right. Pat, you, you, you mentioned Shelby versus uh, Holder, uh, a case from, of all places, Alabama, uh, and uh, which shows you uh, a part of the depth of the opposition. A lot of it, a lot of it centered in Alabama, but also present uh, in uh, in North Carolina. Allen versus uh, Milligan is another uh, Alabama case uh, where in each of these uh, challenges, they went whole hog on the effort to destroy or reformulate what the Voting Rights Act was, was all about. So Kat, could you just take a couple of seconds and, and kind of summarize just what the issue uh, presented to the court in uh, in Mills in uh, Miller versus in Allen versus Milligan was absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think to your point, there was an effort here by Alabama to completely change what Section Two always has been. Um, Roberts, in his decision, said the heart of these cases is not about the law as it exists. It's about Alabama's attempt to remake Section 2 jurisprudence anew. And I think that's a really helpful frame as to where we're coming at in this case. We had plaintiffs who were saying, please protect the rights that we have always had for the last 40 years and just rule for us based on what Section 2 has always been. And we had Alabama saying, actually, Section 2 should be something totally different. Um, so to give some more context, plaintiffs were saying that these congressional maps that came out after the 2020, 2020 census, um, Alabama at that point had been given seven congressional seats, and they had one majority Black district at that time. Uh, to give a frame of reference, Alabama is currently about 27% Black. They actually have a growing Black population and shrinking white population. Um, so there was a challenge brought to those maps um, under Section 2. Um, Section 2 is a very hard standard. Um, I heard one of the lawyers who litigated the case say that it's very straightforward, but incredibly demanding. Uh, plaintiffs have to show that they could create a district 
that is not only just majority black, but just complies with all the other requirements of districting. Um, and that's just one part of a very complicated test to win a section two claim. They have to show that they can create that district, which means you have a minority group that is both sufficiently large and compact. You cannot have a group that is spread all across the state and try to pull it together. The other two parts of the test are really just that you have to show racially polarized voting. And then you get into a question of what they call a totality of the circumstances test. The key for this case is that it was really about the first question here. It was about whether or not they could draw that second majority black district. As to everything else, there was really no debate. Um, the Supreme Court said Alabama's extensive history of repugnant racial and voting related discrimination is undeniable and well-documented. So the real question here was, should section two be the same standard as always, that three-part test and then totality of the circumstances, or should it be something completely different? Alabama was asking for something that they call a, let me make sure I get the term right. They wanted to have a race neutral way of looking at districts. They call it a race neutral benchmark. What this means is they would essentially have a computer system, generate districts, and then say of all these districts that were generated, what is the average number of districts that were majority black? And then they would compare that. So they would have this race neutral benchmark. The Supreme Court said, that's not how section two works. Plaintiffs are supposed to bring us maps. They have the burden to show that you can draw a district that is majority black and that complies with all the other requirements. And so that's really the question here is, is section two going to be the way it's always been, which is what the plaintiffs argued and what the court ultimately held, or were we gonna create a completely new race neutral way of looking at this, which is what Alabama wanted. Okay. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And we are talking with uh, Marcus Bass, who is the uh, director of the uh, North Car Carolina Black Alliance, and uh, Kathleen Robles, who is the senior voting rights counsel and litigation manager at uh, Forward Justice. And we are talking about the uh, Allen versus uh, Milligan Supreme Court decision that uh, was just uh, handed down by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we're going to take our break uh, right now. I want you to stay with us as we continue this, uh, this discussion. So we'll be right back. Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I am a current second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your weekly announcement. This week on the Legal Eagle Review, we talked about the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Allen v. Milligan. On June 8, 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in the case. In a historic win for voting rights, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of black voters, striking down Alabama's 2021 congressional map for violating the Voting Rights Act of 1965 for diluting black political power requiring Alabama to redraw its congressional map. In the case, plaintiffs allege that Alabama's congressional map 
was unconstitutional because race was the main consideration when creating and enacting several congressional districts with the intent to racially discriminate against African-American voters, violating the 14th Amendment. Today, two in seven Alabama voters are black, yet six of seven congressional seats are held by white politicians. Remember, elections are not free if voters are denied equal voting power. This is Shantae McNeil with your weekly announcement. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, and thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion of the uh, Allen versus uh, Milligan case, a recent uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, dealing with uh, the Voting Rights Act and uh, specifically Section 2 of the uh, Voting Rights Act. And we're talking with uh, Marcus Bass, who is the uh, director of the uh, North Carolina Black Alliance, and uh, Kat uh, Robles, who is the senior voting rights counsel uh, and uh, litigation manager at uh, at Forward Justice. And they are helping us to walk through uh, this case and then to determine its uh, impact and importance uh, here in, uh, in, in North Carolina. Uh, during our first, uh, the first part of this discussion, uh, Kat mentioned um, Shelby versus Holder and the gutting of the uh, of Section 5 of the Voting Rights uh, Act. And then uh, that was a case out of Alabama. And then uh, Alabama has doubled down and came back with this uh, most recent attack on the uh, Voting Rights uh, Act and what it is that uh, they want to replace the understanding of that case with. We have uh, in North Carolina, the pledge of Jingles versus uh, uh, Thornburg, uh, which was the first uh, case decided under uh, uh, section two, uh, the amended section two, uh, which talks about uh, the uh, single member districts. Uh, Marcus, can you kind of, Talk about the the the, the impact that uh, the decision in Jingles versus Stormberg had, leading up to what I I really consider the cause of these uh, uh, robust attacks on uh, voting rights in North Carolina by right now uh, conservative uh, Republicans, uh, ultra conservative uh, Republicans. Because can you kind of just you know. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, um, and, and I think that's that's a very good historical context for uh, outlining what discrimination looks like in representation. Um, when we look at the Jingles case, I think there is an examination of the history of official discrimination, the degree to which uh, jurisdictions are racially polarized and the impact that that has in representation. And in some cases, whether minority candidates are denied access to these districts uh, by the slanting of a process. And I think when we talk about um, the elements of 1965 to 2023, that is a short period of time to enfranchise voters that really should have been franchised from the very beginning. 
And in a very real way, particularly in the South, we understand the ties between economic justice and voting rights and really economic justice, voting rights and education. Uh, in order to be able to have a vote that counts and matters, you have to have uh, individuals that are ready to run for office. And those individuals have to have the same fair process of being able to run for office, just like anyone else on the books. Uh, in this case, we have seen in North Carolina, across the South, rules being put in place, measures from um, a, a poll tax to a literacy test to the manipulation of districts to marginalize the vote prospect of individuals on the basis of color. In uh, the case of Jingles in the 80s, you have individuals for the first time uh, having the opportunity to receive office. You mentioned uh, our first individual elected in North Carolina on a state level for the legislature and a congressional level. That happened in the 60s and 70s. In the aftermath of that, there is some sharp backlash by local and state individuals to harness uh, uh, the district manipulation at a very real level. In this North Carolina case, and I think Kat can lay out some of the particulars there, it really set a precedence of defining what it meant to discriminate on the basis of race in regards to districts. And I think those are, are that um, kind of understanding from a congressional level all the way down to a school board level has helped us educate and prepare individuals and also hold accountable individuals that are administering the process of setting these maps and setting the election proceedings in North Carolina. All right. Well, Kat, you, 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 you raised this issue of Shelby versus Holder and the, uh, the, the, the profound negative impact that that decision has had on the uh, voting rights uh, landscape. Uh, ironically, the author of Shelby versus Holder was uh, Chief Justice Roberts. And the author of the uh, Allen versus Milligan case is Chief Justice Roberts. What happened to him that he has now been redeemed? <laughs> Seemingly. I think, I think it certainly <laughs> came as a surprise, especially to those who read Shelby, that he came out not just in favor of the plaintiffs in this case, but really just reaffirming Section 2 jurisprudence and what it stands for and what you know power plaintiffs will have in the future to bring these cases. Um, he really stood firm that Section 2 is meant to apply to redistricting and that we will not be changing the standards based on what has been in place from Congress and from the Supreme Court over the last 40 years. Um, like you said, Shelby was a really <clears throat> tough case because it was a case about Section 5, which was a part of the Voting Rights Act that essentially asked for certain counties, certain states to get pre-clearance before they pass certain changes to voting. Um, and there was also a provision called 4B that determined your coverage formula of who would be part of that pre-clearance group. Uh, technically, Shelby just struck down 4B, but without actually having a formula in 4B, you don't have pre-clearance. What that means is that states are going to pass restrictions to voting, and it is up to voting rights lawyers to bring litigation. There is definitely a profound negative impact to that system because as quickly as we'd like to move, litigation proceeds as elections are proceeding. And so there really is just no substitute for what Section 5 gave 
for areas that had a really invidious history of racial discrimination and still do today. Um, so I think it was certainly a pleasant surprise to see that Justice Roberts did not gut section two the way that he gutted section four and section five in Shelby. Well, you know, and, and, and just, you know, flipping to, to Marcus now, you know, we, we talk about a strong opinion from uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts in uh, uh, Allen versus uh, Milligan. In that opinion was a very uh, robust opposition written by uh, Clarence Thomas, who went even further to the right than did the uh, Alabama uh, uh, legislature and uh, basically said that uh, the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply to anything and ought not be uh, uh, still on the books because it is basically an unconstitutional enactment and spent, uh, I guess, really a book uh, in uh, outlining his opposition uh, to this uh, preference for African-Americans or African-American privilege uh, as he would uh, describe it in the uh, enactment of, uh, uh, of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, how, how as, as an activist out in the community trying to get people to vote, how, how do you respond to uh, some of the uh, wranglings of, uh, of, of Justice Thomas? Well, first, Irv, I'm glad my responses aren't taped in community because I can be a little bit more strong-throated in my response. Um, 50 pages of dissent, Clarence Thomas took the time to not even really examine the merits, but to articulate propaganda garbage that really um, disassociated himself, his lived experience as a Black person in this country and the disenfranchisement and the attempt to enfranchise black voters. Uh, in this case, looking at what he said around section two and this statement around uh, racial entitlement, that's a slap in the face uh, to the understanding of the harm that has been perpetuated, the violence that has been, been perpetuated through the voting process directly. This is not the third good Marshall replacement that we hoped for or that we needed. And in a lot of cases, uh, Justice Marshall, even in his latter years, stated that he would not have supported and did not support uh, Clarence Thomas being brought into the Supreme Court. And in reality, I think there's another uh, 30 minutes of radio show where we talk about the not just the manipulation of voting districts, but the manipulation of individuals at higher levels of government. And these individuals being bought and paid and the price that we pay by having the infusion of money in politics at every level of government. Uh, he is being um, paid to say what he uh, doesn't believe. He has uh, a personal experience as uh, a student in the civil rights movement, as a student of Malcolm X. And so this inherent uh, abhorrent dismissal of his own uh, story of self injustice based on democracy is really a key example of what it looks like when we have wolves and sheep's closing, and we need to be very careful about those same wolves in North Carolina that could be manipulating uh, comments and conversations uh, in Black communities without really talking about the facts of the matter. In this case, it's 50 pages of garbage of a dissent when you see uh, a Republican-led Supreme Court 
affirming Section 8, affirming the Voting Rights Act, and he is the only outlier. Uh, it is a clear and present danger, not just to democracy, but to justice. Well, Kat, since he, he mentioned North Carolina and uh, as uh, the uh, senior uh, litigator at uh, Forward Justice, you are well aware of uh, really progressive decisions that were entered by the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court based on the North Carolina Constitution by the prior uh, Supreme Court uh, here in, in, in the state. And now, uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, we had the startling uh, revelation of uh, the new ultra-conservative North Carolina Supreme Court that gutted all of those uh, uh, really outstanding uh, decisions that were in line with what the North Carolina Constitution would demand. Could you kind of just talk about that shift that we have just uh, experienced here in North Carolina that follows this ultra-conservative mood uh, that we uh, see arising throughout the country? Absolutely. So there were two cases that came near the end of the last term for the prior North Carolina Supreme Court, both the voter ID case and a redistricting case. And when the new court came in, there was a petition filed that by the defendants in those cases for rehearing. And I think what's really important here to give some context is that it's easy for people to say, okay, you wanted what the old court decision was, you know, you don't want to change. But the key here really is just that what happened here is unprecedented. I don't care what political party you are or what the makeup of the court was before or is now. It is absolutely not the norm that when a new court comes in, they quickly pick up a bunch of cases from the last six months, rehear them, and reverse the decision. There were two petitions filed for rehearing, and both were granted. And I know Justice Earls, in her opinion, noted just how exceedingly rare that was. I'm sure it was something like under 10 times that's ever happened in the history of the North Carolina Supreme Court. So it's just a really dangerous precedent to set that a court would come in and rehear a case and reverse it. Um, and there were people justifying that this was necessary just because of a change in the partisan makeup of the court. That's not why you're supposed to rehear a case. If you look at the statute for why you should be able to rehear a case, it was just not met here. So I just think it's important to understand how rare that is. And that's why it was so shocking to see that from the new North Carolina Supreme Court. Where, where, where does that uh, leave us uh, in uh, North Carolina with uh, respect to our ability to protect, protect voting rights uh, here in uh, in the state, uh, Marcus? I think in reality, we have to realize that the Supreme Court's decision does give us a glimmer of hope and the ability to make sure that um, what we are seeing happening in our state by those individuals that are being controlled by a very small percentage, but a very extreme right-wing percentage of leadership in North Carolina, I think this lets us know that there is an opportunity for each voter to have a fair shot at representation, at least on a congressional level. Let's look at 2018 and the fact the Supreme Court, uh, this this uh, different formation, but similar members of the Supreme Court 
ruled uh, that the 2018 congressional maps needed to be redrawn. Uh, that redrawing of the maps gave us some of the fairest congressional districts that we've had uh, in well over 100 years with uh, individuals of color running and winning at a congressional level. And in some cases, that representation is going to have a huge impact on some decisions that may come before Congress over the next four years, over the next two years. Uh, and I think the same thing holds true in North Carolina when it comes down to the decisions that are going to uh, be rolling out here in the next few weeks. Uh, in this case, I think uh, Moore v. Harper is going to be a strong indication of what it means uh, to have a contest uh, around racial implications in elections in North Carolina. Alabama is a bellwether of that. And I think in some cases, historically, we've seen from the Supreme Court on multiple levels, uh, affirming measures to ensure that race is not uh, one, of, is one of the clear poll marks in regards to making sure that there is some control in this partisan power grab. And in any case, when any state legislature is controlled by one particular party, that party is gonna try to maintain control. But when you use race as a lever, there should be a whistle called a red flag on the play, and there should be a, a level of government that enforces laws based on constitutional mandates, uh, especially in this case, I think the Voting Rights Act still has a lot more left to give in regards to justice for black voters. And uh, I'm excited to see what's gonna happen over the next few weeks. And I'm excited to see as we head into a very heavy uh, redistricting cycle in the North Carolina General Assembly with a number of laws that are even being rolled out right now, what type of controls this Supreme Court order will place on the redrawing of maps at every level, particularly in state legislative and congressional maps here in the fall. Okay, you're listening to the uh, Legal Legal Review. And we're talking with uh, Marcus Bass and uh, Kathleen Robles uh, about the uh, recent uh, uh, Supreme Court decision in Allen versus uh, Milligan uh, and the uh, impact and implication of uh, that, uh, that opinion. We are going to uh, take uh, our last break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue uh, this uh, conversation with these two outstanding experts. Uh, to help to uh, educate you about what the uh, law is and then to offer some uh, uh, guidance as to what needs to occur in order to blunt uh, these uh, efforts. So we'll be right back. Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The City of Durham is showing their support for the refugees in our community by hosting Durham Refugee Day on Saturday, July 8th. Durham Refugee Day is a community event that celebrates the contributions and cultures of refugees and immigrant communities and provides an opportunity to stand in solidarity with these communities. The free event is family-friendly and will include live music, community education booths, activities for the kids, and food vendors from around the world. The event will be held from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Durham Central Park, located at 501 Foster Street in Durham, North Carolina. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. All right, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue this uh, discussion 
about the Allen versus uh, Milligan case, its uh, impact and implication, and what it is that we can uh, expect uh, here in uh, North Carolina uh, going forward. And I'm going to start back with uh, with with Kat. Uh, because she has been engaged in the uh, litigation of uh, most of the voting rights cases uh, coming out of North Carolina or that occurs in North Carolina. And I know there is uh, state litigation and there is federal uh, litigation that's, uh, that's out there. But starting off, there was a, uh, an opinion uh, some, some years ago dealing with uh, the constitutionality of the voter ID um, uh, provision of the uh, North Carolina Constitution. Can you talk about the status of that case and what impact does that case have uh, going forward as the uh, legislature is now revamping uh, this uh, notion of uh, voter ID uh, in the state? Well, as I know that Irv and Marcus know well, um, voter ID has been a fight in North Carolina for at least 10 years. Um, so there was a couple big cases. You know, there was the first voter ID bill um, that was challenged in NAACP v. McCrory. That was a case where the Fourth Circuit said that that voter ID law was racially discriminatory. Uh, that was a great win um, for the amazing Caitlin Swain and Penda Hare from Forward Justice. Um, and not too surprisingly, pretty soon after that decision came down in 2016, a new voter ID law was passed, um, SB 824. That came out in the end of 2018. Um, it was passed during a lame duck legislative session. Um, so there's a lot of questions there and there is a challenge right now in court to them even having the ability to have amended the North Carolina constitution to add voter ID when they were aware that they were a product of a racially gerrymandered legislature. Um, but nevertheless, they did amend the constitution. They did pass this voter ID bill um, and there've been challenges to it ever since. Um, one uh, in federal court with uh, forward justice and one in state court with SESJ. Um, so I know it's probably been kind of confusing for residents of North Carolina to hear a lot of back and forth. Um, the state voter ID case was one of the ones that there was initially a win. Um, the prior North Carolina Supreme Court said that that law is discriminatory and struck it down. However, it was reheard and it was reversed. Um, our federal case um, is still ongoing, but the current state of North Carolina right now is that they are seeking to implement voter ID on a very short timeline. Um, about five months, if even that, um, before we get into the municipals this fall. So the current state is that voter ID is required um, and that they are trying to implement it this fall, which is um, not only a lot, but I guess I want people to understand the backdrop of all the other elections changes they are trying to pass in the legislature right now. Um, there's a bill called SB 747 that seeks to make a lot of changes to the way our elections are run. And when you take that, if it were to pass in its current form, plus the implementation of voter ID, it is a lot of changes that we're looking to have um, coming up in our elections this fall. 
Well, switching to, to Marcus, uh, you know, one of the things that you know, we can say about North Carolina is that today there are three uh, African-Americans who are uh, serving uh, in, uh, in Congress, three out of, I think it's 14 uh, now, uh, which uh, is historical. There has never been that many African-Americans elected to Congress. Uh, none of them are elected from major, um, majority-minority districts. Uh, these are districts in which uh, African-Americans don't predominate, as is the situation in, uh, in, uh, in, in Alabama. In order for African-Americans and people of color to continue uh, their robust participation, in uh, political affairs in this state. And as an organizer and activist with uh, these uh, legislators, what, what, what is your advice at the community level that uh, people ought to be focusing on and directing uh, their resources around to ensure that the uh, gains will not be lost? I don't wanna um, go too far past noting the historic moment that we're in um, with the election or the addition now of Congressman Don Davis, Congresswoman Valerie Fushi, who is also the chair of the North Carolina Black Alliance, and of course, Congresswoman Alma Adams. We now have not just a seat at the table, but a chance to determine what's on the menu for North Carolina. There is very few checks and balances left uh, in government, thanks to the partisan power grabs that we're seeing on behalf of this ultra conservative uh, agenda that is being, um, you know, exacerbated across the state. And I think in this case, on a local level, we have to make sure that number one, we're educating ourselves around these changes. Right now, voter ID is threatening to harm each and every single family, regardless if you realize it or not. There are a lot of individuals that don't have a valid form of identification that can be used to vote in this year's election. This year's election is a municipal election. In a lot of cases, in these towns and cities across North Carolina, precincts can determine by three votes or fewer the outcome of who handles some of these local situations of police negligence. Uh, because the cities and local governments uh, hire and fire the police chiefs and they administer ordinances. Uh, that is a very real situation. The criminal justice movement at the national level is being fueled by this issue of gun control. There are local elements at stake that could determine gun laws at a local level. Uh, there are individuals that are watching uh, the conservative movement and they are following a playbook that is not just at a federal level, but it's also at a local level. When we see what's happening in our school boards, and we talked about uh, school boards and the history of our representation at a school level, the school boards are being overtaken by individuals that don't even live in their communities, but are perpetuating this myth of critical race theory or this anti-woke theory. Uh, these elections that are going to be harmed by the lack of voter ID or the lack of proper education or even the time span, typically there's three weeks of voting, early voting. Now we just have seven days. It may even be um, fewer days to turn in your absentee ballot. There are so many different things that we have to prepare to educate ourselves around. But the reality of these laws, Herb, is that they're not just harmful to Black voters. 
But if you're a rural voter, if you are a uh, minority voter, or if you're even a white voter living in communities where you need fair laws and representation and equitable access to services at a government level, you need to make sure that you're aware of these changes. It's not just about Republican and Democrat. It's about um, the manipulation of our government on behalf of these large corporations that are paying for these candidates and these positions. And everyone in community is being played by this element of believing that these laws are only harming one segment of people. They're hindering our ability to grow and thrive in communities across North Carolina. And so we are working with our local elected officials and our community members to educate themselves. Juneteenth was a perfect opportunity and we were in community across the state, making sure folks knew about the changes to voter ID to even just uh, this week, uh, this past week, the North Carolina Legislative Black Caucus is having their annual foundation event where over hundreds of individuals from across the state will be attending. And these issues are gonna need to be taken from Raleigh and Durham back to these rural parts of the state. And we're gonna make sure that the information that we're getting now and we're sharing in the Legal Eagle Review, along with our partners in forward justice, is being disseminated to our leadership and our members across North Carolina. And we need to make sure that we stay on the wall in this moment and be very uh, alert as far as what's happening because just because it is happening to us doesn't mean we don't have the power to stop it. Well, organization is going to be uh, very important as well as mobilization. I think that it is certainly a plug that I need to make here now that uh, in the uh, last election, uh, African-American voted at one of the lowest rates in history, and it was devastating on the uh, political uh, scene. And uh, it is uh, incumbent upon us to ensure that that does not happen uh, again, because if you don't vote, uh, then you will lose the right uh, to vote. Cat, uh, can you kind of talk about what uh, what you see from 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 your angle as uh, managing uh, uh, litigator uh, to uh, advice to the community uh, as to what to watch out for and what to uh, guard against in this uh, upcoming uh, election, where uh, voter ID will be probably probably required. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, essentially what we all want is just broader access to the voting franchise and a more inclusive democracy. We want to expand the we and we the people. And that's why we are so concerned about all of these new rules that are just cutting back access to voting, making it harder to understand how to vote, when to vote, what to bring with you. Um, I want to plug, as always, you can vote because they just do such amazing work with telling you just what are the requirements? What do I need? I also want to make sure that, you know, what the state board is putting out is that everyone will have the ability to vote with or without an ID. But that being said, if you don't have an ID um, on the approved list, you will be voting in a separate type of ballot um, and have to fill out um, I should say it's a regular ballot, but you will have to fill out a reasonable impediment declaration about why you don't have an ID. Um, so I just want to make sure that everyone knows sort of their rights and make sure that they don't get turned away. I think you should always um, second guess if someone's telling you just leave, you can't vote, um, and please to utilize the hotlines like the Dem NC hotline. If you go in and they say you can't vote today um, 
and really nothing more than that. I really ask people to sort of call up, explain the situation and see if someone can talk them through what the question is about whether they need, you know, an ID or a HAVA document. Um, and I wish that it wasn't so complicated because, you know, this is a constitutional right to vote. And I want everyone to be able to access the ballot and to be able to exercise that right. But certainly you can vote and the Dem NC hotline are amazing resources when you are in the middle of an election. But certainly second guess anyone who's telling you, hey, I know you were in line when the polls were closing, but you have to leave. Or yeah, you don't have the document you need, so you cannot cast any type of ballot today. I also really want people to look out for voter intimidation um, because unfortunately, that is something that still happens regularly. Um, black and brown voters are under attack and voter intimidation can take so many forms. It can be people also just giving you mis and disinformation about whether you're able to vote. It can be actual verbal threats, physical threats. It can be people having weapons at a polling place where they are not allowed. Um, so it's a real, if you see something, say something moment please do call up the Dem NC hotline. Forward Justice takes all of the calls that are about voter intimidation. Um, and we will make sure to follow up on those. We just want everyone to feel safe and just that you know your rights and that you feel safe going to cast a ballot. And if I could add to yeah. um, very quickly, right now there is 10, there are 10 HBCUs in North Carolina each and every single college campus has to go through a process by which the General Assembly approves or validates their ID as an acceptable form of identification to go vote. We need every single listener, if you are a product of an HBCU, if you're a product of a, a college campus here in North Carolina, to make sure that your campus is following the process of communicating with the General Assembly around accepting their form of identification for voting. The voter ID process is still in the books, in the works, even though it's very contentious, there's still an opportunity for us to make sure that we have full participation. There are over 54,000 HBCU students in North Carolina, and each and every single one of those students can use their form of identification to vote if the campus has sent the preclearance form to the General Assembly, and we need your help to make sure your campus is counted and that voter ID form is, is gonna be acceptable use of, of identification. So make sure that your campus has communicated that uh, to the General Assembly before the deadline. Okay, very important uh, information. We have a couple more seconds. Let me just ask one other thing, as to those people who desire to vote, but are physically unable to get to the polling place, uh, what advice do you have uh, for them? Either you, uh, either Marcus or Katz, whichever one wants to answer that. I'll go quickly. Um, I would say, I think we've talked a little bit about, I think maybe Marcus mentioned the idea of cutting back the deadline for absentee ballot receipt. So I think for sure, for anyone looking to do a mail-in ballot, earlier is better because there is a proposal right now as part of SB 747 to cut the deadline by three days meaning that if your ballot is not received on election day, it won't be counted. Um, but certainly you can go to the state board's website or you can go to an organization like You Can Vote and you need to request an absentee ballot. 
and then you will get it in the mail and you will have to sign it and really follow the instructions to make sure you sign and your witnesses sign um, so that you don't have to get into the cure process um, with your ballot and that it will be counted. Um, so just to make sure really you plan in advance and utilize all the resources that are out there that can certainly walk you through how to cast a mail-in ballot. Okay. I also want to shout out Disability Rights NC. Uh, They're one of the leading advocates for support around voting for individuals that may not be able to vote in person for whatever reason. Uh, and they are actively working. They have a staff person there. Kenya Myers is also a North Carolina Central University alum uh, that is actively engaged in the fight around voter ID, voter protection, and making sure that all voters have the right to vote. And so I definitely want to shout out Disability Rights North Carolina. I think their uh, website is accessible. If you just Google Disability Rights NC, you can get the information and they can make sure uh, that you have all the information you need to cast a ballot and you have a right to cast a ballot uh, in person or uh, absentee uh, from home. Yes, for sure. Don't forget curbside because there is curbside voting if you have missed the deadlines for the mail-in ballots or just would prefer to do it that way. There is curbside voting and disability rights does an amazing job advocating if they hear that there is any site where curbside voting is not accessible, they are really there for you. So there's a couple different ways to do it. For everyone who needs to vote, there is a way. You ought to be angered at what is going on to ensure that you take revenge against those who are trying to take away your right uh, to vote. We're out of time, and we want to uh, thank our guests uh, for uh, uh, joining with us uh, this evening. Uh, Marcus Bass, who is the uh, executive director of the North Carolina Black Alliance, and uh, Kathleen Robles, who is the senior voting rights counsel and litigation manager at uh, Forward Justice. They have uh, provided us with outstanding uh, information and inspiration uh, to go forward. We also like to thank you for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you enjoyed uh, this uh, discussions. If you have uh, any questions, send us an email at uh, legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you miss any part of this uh, discussion uh, this evening, you can now find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. So until next week, stay informed, stay engaged, healthy, and safe. We'll see you next week.